Today is March 18, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Anna Dane for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Anne is best known for winning the first professional road race in 1981 at the Cascade Runoff. That race and accepting money changed track and field in the Olympic Games forever. So Anne is definitely uh, one of the pioneers for the professional women's running and changing track and field. Hello, Anne. Good morning, Amy. And you definitely have an interesting history for running because you didn't even start off being able to walk from the time that you were born. Tell me how um, your running got started and, and how you overcame some definite uh, deformities when, when you were younger. Well, I was given up for adoption by a teenage mum, and I was born with bone deformities of both my feet. And the doctors told my mum and dad they weren't going to do anything to correct um, them until they saw how I started to walk when, obviously, you know, um, crawling first and then walking. They wanted to see how I adapted to the problem. It was extreme uh, bone deformities sticking out the front part of my feet where my big toes were. And as I started to walk, it was noticeable that I would not get up on the front part of my feet, that I went along on my heels and on the outside of my feet. And it was, you know, as I grew older, it was very painful. And the doctors told my mum and dad they weren't going to do surgery until I was a teenager so that my bones would be strong enough to handle the surgery and recover from the surgery. So that put me into a situation, uh, pretty tough years as a young kid, um, going to elementary school and having to deal with the fact that I couldn't run and jump and play like all the other kids because there was a lot of pain and wearing shoes was also very difficult because nothing fit. In fact, my dad would get me little soft slippers in the wintertime and get a hole cut in the side so I could wear them. And then in the summertime, it would be sandals with straps that could be kind of altered so that the deformity stuck out. And uh, fortunately, New Zealand's climate uh, is mild enough that uh, having to wear big boots and so forth in the wintertime wasn't necessary. So when it came time to do the surgery, I was 13 years old, and the doctors told my parents they couldn't promise miracles, but they hoped that they would do enough so that I would have the heel-toe motion of walking. So they did the surgery, and I came out of hospital, and they told my mum and dad that instead of giving me crutches or a wheelchair that they were, had an idea that uh, they'd come up with that would immediately help me get the heel-toe motion. And that idea was to connect a big black leather boot to the bottom of my plaster cast. And on the bottom of the plaster cast was a wooden rocker like a rocking horse. And I walked out of that hospital on feet that had had bones moved around and I had stitches under those plaster casts. And, uh, you know, I went around like that for about six months, and it was another time of it being very painful and me cursing at the doctors, but to be honest, those doctors were absolute geniuses because they did give me that wonderful heel-toe motion of uh, walking and ultimately uh, forefront running motion, uh, which gave me a perfect running style. But at that point, none of us knew that I was going to be a runner. Uh, one year after going through all the uh, rehab and um, physical therapy, I just announced to my mum and dad that I wanted to join a track and field club like all the other kids in my neighborhood. 
And the difference between New Zealand and the United States is that uh, all our sports are primarily uh, administrated by club system. Schools do not have a, a big role to play. Sports are played in schools, but they're not played like a system here, high school sports and the NCAA. Uh, New Zealand only has about four universities, so the NCAA is not needed. So I joined a local track and field club, which was all-inclusive. You could be five years of age or 95 years of age and come and participate in track and field. And that's what I told my mum and dad to do. Uh, mum and dad weren't um, exactly too thrilled about that idea. They were concerned about me and how my feet were going to hold up. And it really took some neighbours um, to take me up to club nights and say that they would help me out and encourage me when mum and dad were kind of too wary about it all. So I started off running at the track and field club, and in those days, which was 1970, uh, girls could only run as far as the 400 metres, and senior women, women over the age of 21, could run as far as 800 metres. And the 800 metres was the longest distance in the Olympic Games for women. And that's how I started out. I thought I was just going to be a sprinter for the rest of my life. So how does that sound so far? That is that is great. Um, the club program is definitely something different. Um, and you guys had different clubs all over New Zealand. Um, yes. How many different cities and different areas would combine into one club? It was actually really suburbs. Suburbs of the major cities had clubs. So I grew up in New Zealand's largest city of Auckland, and I grew up in a suburb of Auckland, of which I would have said there was easily 50 suburbs of Auckland City. It's a very big suburb, a very big city. And so there were 50 running clubs, and each of those running clubs would have a club night midweek, and then on a Saturday we would have inter-club competition throughout the year, and then you would come down to kind of regional competitions and then you would end up with the Auckland championships and if you got that far you would go to provincial championships and then you would go to the New Zealand championships so um, multiple multiple clubs uh, in, the, in the entire nation and to this day uh, many of them still exist uh, some of them have merged but uh, the club system is still huge in New Zealand and do people stay really in their area for the clubs, or do people kind of go around to whichever club they thought was best? No, they actually stay local. Uh, my club uh, in South Auckland was, was one of the biggest clubs in the nation when I joined. It had over a 1,000 members, and yet my little suburb was not that big. Um, but track and field was huge in New Zealand in that era, and... That was the, the thing to do, and, and as I said, it was all-inclusive, so you're talking kids and adults, and uh, it was very community-oriented, and uh, a lot of support how it would work was you'd all turn up on the uh, about 5 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, and all the little kids would run, jump, and throw, and do all the track and field events, and then the older kids would, and then the parents would get involved, and the older kids would administrate the or officiate, I should say, the, the parents. And it was very, very family community-oriented, and we would raise money for the club by cake sales and uh, bottle drives and, and uh, raffles and 
every Saturday night there was a dance at the local club, and it was open for kids. It was family, very, very family-oriented. Okay. And I guess when you showed up, did the did the kids and adults train together? Did the boys and the girls train together? How did the training work with, with a different and all-inclusive group? Well, back then, there wasn't really supposed to be a professional coach with any club. The sport was strictly amateur, so any support you were getting was just from volunteers. But my first coach uh, at that club happened to be an Englishman by the name of Gordon Perry, who had immigrated to New Zealand, and he wanted to be a professional coach, which, of course, was completely illegal in terms of the sport back then. So our club found a way to pay him a little bit of money yearly to be the club coach. I don't know how they did that, but he did get paid to be the club coach. And so he coached as many people that wanted to be coached. And, yes, boys and girls and male and female all trained together. And uh, every Tuesday and Thursday night was club training nights, and he welcomed everybody of all ages and only in the running side. There were different people helping with the field events, but only on the running side. And he, he coached people on the, eight, uh, on the 100 metres all the way up to, I don't know how long the men were running back then. I'm sure they were all the way up to the 10,000 metres. Um, I bet they were. But for women, it was just 800 metres. And, you know, in terms of uh, equipment and everything, in, in terms of women compared to the men, um, we we would, uh, yeah, as young girls, we would wear boys' rugby shorts um, uh, to train in or otherwise we would buy ourselves three or four pairs of underwear of the club colors and wear all four pairs at once. Um, it's, I, I look back at some of my pictures and I laugh at, at how we looked. And, and, I mean, obviously there were no uh, running bras and uh, the boys all you know, had the club uniforms, but we had to wear the boys' uniforms. And, and as I said, what we did was go and find boys' rugby shorts for our um, for our bottoms. So uh, it was, yeah, it wasn't too good and it wasn't too uh, fashionable in, in terms of women's or girls' running gear. And with your with your feet and, and running, what did you did you have to modify any of the shoes? Were you guys able to get shoes? Um, well, the, the the beauty of New Zealand back then was all our tracks were grass tracks. So I could run barefoot, which is what I preferred to do. Then when uh, I had to run um, uh, our main track in Auckland City where they held championships was a cinder track. So to deal with that, I used to go and get myself little canvas shoes from like a Kmart or a Target, just little canvas sneakers. That's how I started off. And then... Uh, in terms of having spikes, when I got my first pair of spikes, uh, they had the spikes permanently in the shoes. You couldn't uh, change them. They were permanently in the shoes. So if you were running, they were about an inch long, I remember. So that, that kind of helped on the grass track. But when you got to the cinder track, if that track hadn't had a little bit of rain, those spikes didn't go into it. So that was my first pair of spikes. And... I think the first shoes that so-called running shoes I used were um, the, the, oh, what were they? They came from Japan, and they were called Tigers. The Anasuka Tigers. Now, 
it's now ASICs, but they were called Tigers. And they were little canvas sneakers that were supposedly running shoes. They had no reinforcing whatsoever. They were as light as can be with, you know, no heel or anything. I mean, very, very minimal shoes, just like everybody's going back to now uh, in terms of all these fancy minimalist shoes that are out there. But I will tell you, when I told the doctors that I wanted to run, those doctors told me to run in the nearest thing possible to bare feet because that's the way my feet were meant to be used. And to this day, I have trained and raced in racing flats my entire career. I never, ever used any of the other shoes that are all built up. And to this day, I still run in racing flats. So when all this craze came out of minimal running and minimal shoes, I thought, well, that's what those doctors told me to do. But the only difference is that I started off as a, at a very young age uh, running almost barefoot. Um, and now they're asking people, you know, who are in their 30s and 40s to make the change, and I think that's too late. So that's my comment on that. But I, I started off with very minimal shoes and went my entire 22-year career with uh, racing flats. And to this day, at, at the age of 50. Seven, I still just wear racing flats. Ah, okay. Excellent. Um, it's definitely, the shoes have definitely uh, changed over time. And um, I guess since we're talking about the barefoot movement and the change of shoes, what do you, you've seen the change of shoes since then. Um, and what do you think of the new, the built-up shoes and now going in into the the barefoot craze. I mean, every company now, they haven't gone quite as far as the Vibram, but almost every company now has, um, you know, the, the heel-to-toe ratio on all their boxes and, you know, minimal issues. Um, for you, you grew up running barefoot, but, you know, some of these kids and some of the adults, they haven't. Um, do you think that's leading to more injuries and, um, and more foot problems for people? I, I think in, in both cases. I've watched young people, young high school kids, um, you know, just even where I live here, they're wearing shoes that are way too much shoes for, for young kids. I mean, what's happening with some of these shoes, these kids are, are, are wearing way too much shoe at a very young age, and I think those shoes are causing a lot of havoc when these are young bodies still adapting. Um, I think that's the time for these young kids to be trying out the minimal shoes. Um, I think it's too late for some adults um, to be trying them out. I think their bodies have already adapted to how they run, and I think it's too late to change. Um, but I'm actually very pro. I, I just know, <laughs> I mean, a funny story is is that I got sent a pair of shoes by a shoe company. It's a while back now, and just for me to try. And they were, for what I would say, just too clunky. I mean, I put them on and try to run, and they took me from a, you could say, a six-minute miler to an eight-minute miler because I could just not run in them. And I kept them for a while, and I would tease my husband because we don't run together. I prefer to run alone, and he likes company, but we don't, we don't run a lot together. And uh, <laughs> he would often, when he couldn't get any friends to run with him, would say, oh, come on, Annie, will you come and run with me today? And I'd tease him and say, okay, I'll go and put my clunkers on so then I'll be able to keep at your speed. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. I My test for a good pair of shoes, because I've had to purchase my shoes from the moment I retired, so I've been buying my own shoes for 20 years now, and 
my test going into a store, if I can't bend that shoe in half, then it's no good. Okay. I like I like that. That's, you definitely know what you need and, and what's going to work. And um, I do think that kids should build up their feet a little more instead of putting them in these, these massive shoes um, that they're starting. Well, and they're also going with the fads, and they're following what their teammates are doing, and they're not finding out what really works for them. And, um, I mean, you got to think, if anybody can, can legitimately say that they know what they're speaking about, is I'm, you know, been running for over 40-something years after having all that surgery. My feet are in good shape. I have no, I mean, fingers crossed, I have no problems whatsoever, no knee problems, no hip problems. I'm out still running five to six miles a day on feet that were reconstructed, and I wear minimal shoes. Wow. I mean, I love that. I love that you, um, I love that the doctors were so forward-thinking with you in doing that. They tried something, you know, they were trying, they were using really common sense and went with went with their gut feeling, which oh, I know. That would really amazing for you. Well, I don't think it ever would have been done in the United States. No. <laughs> they would never have taken that risk here in the United States. I mean, they, the, the doctor who did my feet, um, there was a documentary made, few years ago and we found that he was still alive and he's just turned 91 we managed to interview him and and he was getting him on on record as saying what was wrong and why they did it was just really really great because it really um validated what i'd been saying because there's a lot of times people go oh yeah right you had all those problems and really getting him documented by saying yes it was it was a really bad problem and we would have had to do it even if she was the biggest couch potato in the world he goes, we didn't do it thinking she was going to be an athlete. Nobody knew she was going to be a runner. We just did it because we wanted her to be more mobile in life. And those those doctors were geniuses. They, they took a big risk, but they were right. And to this day, I say that they gave me a, a wonderful running style that's taken me a long way in life. Yeah. But that is a great story of how you got started running and, and then being able to be in a in an environment where running was really encouraged and it was all-inclusive, you know, kids, men, women. Um, you started running, you joined the club when you were around 14. How long did it take you to actually be coached by Gordon? Oh, very quickly. Um, I just joined the club and he came up to me, I think, after about two nights of the club meetings and said, you, you need to be coached. Um, it was very, very quick. And, um, and and one beauty about New Zealand is that um, New Zealand was the first country in the world to give women the vote. It was very proactive in terms of women. So sports in terms of women and girls in New Zealand was, was very encouraged um, in that era. So there was no doubt that the girls at the club were going to get treated exactly the same as the boys. So um, And for that matter, any women who were out there running uh, at the higher level, um, they were getting just as much support. The, the biggest difference back then was the distances weren't there for women, but that would be the only uh, thing that I would say was different, was that we were treated equally at the club, we were encouraged equally at the club or at, or at the higher levels, but the, the biggest difference was that at that particular point, women only had the 800 metres to run or about a mile of cross country. Okay. And you you were in this club with some amazing athletes. Did training in a club with some of the New Zealand greats, did that 
trickle down and give synergy to the entire club and, and especially the juniors? I think so. I mean, it, it's, you know, obviously it's this uh, individual sport and so you've got the competition, but we were um, uh, encouraged to, you know, we were teammates when we left and we were teammates for the club and then we would be teammates on an Auckland team to go to the Nationals. And so there was the team aspect of it as well as the individual side of it. Um, there was, heck, I would say as many females at the club um, as there were males, and there were the older ones. I mean, we were all teenagers, those of us, um, uh, the group, you know, and then there was the older women. So, I mean, my first team I went away in was in 1973, and I was only 17 years old, and I was with a whole uh, bunch of senior male and female teammates. Um, so, but they still took me as a 17-year-old to the World Cross Country Championships. So, I, I, you know, I think that was very forward-thinking. That would not happen. The rules in the United States in terms of, you know, the age group and who can run where and when. And, um, I mean, the beauty of the sport in New Zealand, it was year-round. You went from track to cross-country to road racing, back to track, and there were never any rules that told me that I couldn't be coached by someone and I couldn't run year-round and I couldn't enter any race I wanted to at any time. Never any rules. Never. So we were so free. There was so much freedom. That is that is great. The the first team that you were actually allowed to be on was the 73 World Cross Country Team, but technically you qualified for the 1972 Munich Games. I did. I went out for the trials, and Munich in 72 was going to be the first Olympics that had the 1,500 meters for women, and I managed to do the international qualifying time, and I got selected in the team, but with three weeks to go, they told my mum and dad they weren't going to take me. And a lot of it was to do with, first of all, my age. I was only 16 years old. I was still in high school. And secondly, New Zealand cannot afford to take um, a full team like the United States does. And so they were really looking at my age and, and saying, well, really, she's, she's really too young, and, and we can replace her with a male athlete that, you know, might have a better chance of doing something. And, and there was, the, um, uh, you know, the difference in terms of, or the, the disappointment in terms of always having that dream that um, uh, to go to the Olympic Games, you think, well, this might be it. This might be your only chance. But, you know, in hindsight, I think it was the, the right thing because Munich had its tragedy of its own. And at 16 years of age for a young girl, from New Zealand to experience something like that I don't think would have been really healthy. I don't think my parents would have let me leave home again. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. A lot of people have um, really um, bad memories or interesting experiences coming away from Munich. Um, yeah, 16, that, I can't even imagine at 16 going away and experiencing uh, something like that. Well, I, t I tell you, 17 was um, bad enough. I mean, 17 was just a, a real eye-opener in terms of the world um, to go away um, to the World Cross Country because New Zealand, when it went away to the World Cross Country, was obviously coming out of the New Zealand summer. So they would always send us for about four to six weeks to Europe to run in the cross-country meets so that we would adapt to the um, winter and get ready to be able to run in those conditions. And so when I went away at 17, um, I had actually just started Teachers College, 
And I went to Teachers College for two weeks and said, okay, well, I'm going to be gone for six because I'm going over to Europe. And 17 years old, and I got to travel around Europe for six weeks and, and all these great events and, and be part of a team. I mean, it was the most amazing experience um, to get as a, as a young girl out in New Zealand. Um, I mean, it was eye-opening in a lot of ways. And I, I remember my mum and dad, I came home and my mom, sitting around the table and my mum and dad saying to me, well, gosh, you know, you've changed. And it's like, well, heck, if you'd seen what I'd seen, you would have changed too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love your journal. Just you... In your book, you bring out a lot of things from your journal and, and what it was like to travel. Not only did you guys have to go to acclimatize, but it took you guys forever to travel to some of these meets that you went to. Um, the things, the things and different transportations you guys took was was really amazing. Well, yes, coming out of New Zealand to get all the way to Europe, some of our flights were 52 hours long. And no, we didn't stop over anywhere. We only stopped to refuel. And, and you had to learn to to adapt to something like that, the sheer fatigue of, of traveling for that long. Plus, in those days, the planes had the smoking sections. And I don't care how ventilated they were. By the time you, you got a few hours into the air, you were definitely breathing that smoky air. And there were times when we got all the way to London, and a couple of times, you know, our, some of my team members had to be kind of hospitalized or, or they were so exhausted, you know, just out of sheer exhaustion. And, uh, yeah, I, I look at, you, you kind of look at that and that's what we had to do. And so you do what you have to do, which once I kind of came to the United States and started traveling around here and I'd often see a lot of uh, athletes getting all upset about things and travel and I'd think, oh, you have no idea. This is really easy. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Talking to some of the women that that ran, the things that they went through, um, not only with travel and equipment, but some of the women that ran track in the early days weren't allowed to be on the track with the men, and the men's coaches would lock up the tracks, and the women would have to jump the fences. I mean, they, they went through a lot of barriers, both physically, socially, and culturally, that, that we don't have today. So I think the women who started the running definitely uh, were a lot tougher than, than some of the generations after them. Yeah, and and I I feel that um, I you know I really feel that that I was better off definitely than the women in this country. I, I mean, really, when I listen to what you're saying, and and I know um, the women of of my age or even a bit older here. Um, I just, New Zealand was completely different. We had so much freedom and encouragement. It, it's, it really was very different. Um, I do think um, one of the differences, though, is the New Zealand um, national governing body. Over and over again in your book and in um, Lorraine Muller's book, you guys butted heads all the time with the governing body because they were constantly changing their mind and changing the qualifying standards. Um, Explain to people the difference in your qualifying standards. And you touched on it a little bit, saying that they couldn't afford to take all the athletes, so that was part of it. But talk about uh, your qualifying procedures for many of the games that you guys had to go to. Well, what New Zealand tries to do is set sets up a qualifying standard. Even though there's the International Olympic Qualifying Standard, because of money issues, they set up a standard that you have to have been ranked in the top 16 in the world the previous year. Um, 
to you have to no I'm sorry you have to run a time that is equal to be ranked in the top 16 in the world the previous year so uh, if you were being selected for the 10,000 meters and the international standard was um, 32 minutes and 35 seconds but top 16th place in the world the previous year was 32 minutes and 10 seconds then they wanted you to run better than the 32 minutes and 10 seconds and they would also never accept any time that we ran outside of New Zealand. They would force us to come back to New Zealand and run the time on New Zealand soil. And I, when I look back at it, this was all a, a, a power grab in terms of the administrators. This is just a whole bunch of people with egos, and this was a way that they had power over us. To this day, they're still doing it, and they've done it with male athletes in New Zealand in the last few Olympic Games. So... It's still going on in New Zealand because it's a way for a lot of these people to have a bit of power because instead of it being like the United States where the top three at the Olympic trials get to go, because New Zealand can't afford to send everybody, they've got to be more selective, and this is just a way for people to you know, have a bit of power over you. And, and Lorraine and I fought back, and we fought back a lot. And um, so... Uh, yeah, it wasn't always easy. My second coach was very instrumental in also fighting for us, and even after I retired and other athletes that he coached, he was continually fighting the administration until he actually got to be president of the Olympic Association, and things changed under him, but sadly he passed away too soon, and I think it's gone back a little bit to how it used to be. Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, and New Zealand's not the only country. Canada does a little bit of the same as well, and, you know, they say it's also because of money issues, and sometimes they say, okay, you've qualified, but you have to pay your entire way or things like that. Um, mm -hmm. At least they gave, at least they give Canadians that option. Do they give um, the New Zealand athletes that option sometimes? We We never had to pay our way. That was one thing. We never pay for anything. So... So we never got to that situation. We we always had our, whenever we were in a New Zealand team, everything was totally taken care of. Okay. Um, and during this time, you're competing, you're representing your country, um, and you're also going to school and trying to support yourself. Um, the years uh, between 1972 and 1976 were definitely busy for you and you still ended up um, qualifying for your second Olympic team and competing in the Commonwealth Games. Um, tell me about how you juggled all of that, going to school, getting your degree, representing the country. That, that was not an easy time. Well, it wasn't. I still, I graduated from high school when I was 16 and went to teacher's college at 17. Um, another great thing about New Zealand back then was the government actually paid you to go to teacher's college. It wasn't very much, but it allowed me to still live at home with my mum and dad and pay some room and board and uh, and go to... I didn't own a car. I mean, I was young. I was just 17. And uh, so I went to teacher's college, and it allowed me to train twice a day and, and still, you know, compete and still go to my classes, but I was living at home. And then I graduated at age 19 and had my own class at age 20, um, second and third graders, and um, it was another Olympic year. Well, going from college to um, teaching full-time was also difficult. I would get up in the morning and train 
then I'd catch a bus to my school because I still couldn't afford to own a car. And after school, I would catch a bus to the track club and I would train. And then sometimes it would be either my mum and dad would come and pick me up or, you know, friends, parents would take, give me a ride home. And I'd get up the next morning and do the same thing. And that particular year was 1976, the Olympic Games in Montreal, Canada, and I'm a full-time teacher. And the other beauty, though, about New Zealand is that the summer holidays, which is the main part of the track season, they go from December uh, for two months, December, January. And so I was able to get off at the end of the year and, and put a lot of work in through the summer months and get ready for the New Zealand Championships and Olympic trials. I ended up winning the trials in both the 800 and 1500 metres and getting selected for Montreal. And at that point, the school superintendent called me in and said I had to make a choice whether I went to the Olympic Games or I lost my job as a teacher because he wasn't going to hold it for me. And I said, well, you know, I can probably teach for the rest of my life, but this might be the only time I get to go to the Olympic Games. And, you know, I went away. I went away for a couple of months. Um, they paid, the, the sporting administration paid for me to go to Europe for about eight weeks six weeks before going to Montreal and uh, it was it was a pretty you know neat time to finally get to the Olympic Games and uh, it was tough because back in that era uh, 1976 was when you know the really big era of the Eastern Bloc women and all the accusations of their um, drug taking and uh, for me getting to Montreal and actually to see some of these women in person and, and there was no doubt in my mind that these European women were on drugs. So at 20 years of age, you really then start to question, am I going to keep going because everybody in my sports looks like they're doped up? Yeah, that, um, how did you, how did you continue to run knowing that a lot of the women that you were competing against um, we're taking drugs. A lot of people got disenfranchised and didn't want to keep doing it. A lot of people thought, oh, I'm just going to be the best that I can be. What attitude did you take towards the drug use? I truly just loved to run. And it wasn't until you really got to that Olympic, maybe world championship level, that you really had to um, experience that. So in other aspects, in the British Commonwealth Games, obviously the Eastern Bloc women weren't in the Commonwealth Games. Um, a lot of them uh, weren't in the World Cross Country because that was a little bit more endurance, and so the taking of the steroids and everything wasn't going to help you so much, you know, that right now, you know, we're dealing with EPO and, and all that. But um, it kind of helped that you still had some other places to go, and so you didn't experience these women all the time, only every four years at the Olympics, um, occasionally maybe in track and in Europe. So there was still a, a great platform to be able to run. So it wasn't necessary. I didn't feel it was worthwhile quitting over them. Um, I just loved to run, and I loved to compete. So that actually, that thought never entered my mind um, a great deal. My My frustration in the end came with dealing with my first coach and... Um, just, you know, a lot of things um, around that and, and being disappointed with, you know, moving forward from 76, the boycott of the 1980 Olympics as well, and, and, and getting frustrated that I wasn't improving 
under my first coach. And then, of course, you know, you realize that the distances weren't exactly there for you. And, you know, you fast forward. And, and then when all those other longer distances came in, there was a whole new world opened up. <laughs> Definitely. And, and during this time, you touched on a little bit about um, dealing with your coach. Um, your first coach coached you um, for about 10 years, Gordon did. And and talk about, you know, what kind of workouts or mileage and, and just the relationship you had with him. Because um, a lot of people probably have uh, good relationships and bad relationships with coaches. Um, talk about your, your first coach with Gordon. Well, when I joined Gordon, I was 14 years old and he was 40. And I was raised, as a lot of kids in New Zealand were, um, to respect adults. And so he was always Mr. Purry, Mr. Yes, Sir, and... and, and uh, and that's how we all were with him. He was very dogmatic and very confrontational. He was a screamer. He would scream at us all. Um, he would play us all off against each other a lot. Um, he would, you know, ridicule the boys that he was coaching if somehow I did a better workout. He would use his athletes to taunt the other athletes. And, and uh, very confrontational with administrators. Um, and, and in some respects... When I look back at him, I think that I became so competitive and, and turned myself into a front runner because I always wanted to prove him wrong. When he would say I couldn't do something, my mindset was, well, I'm going to show you I can. Well, it worked for me, but sadly I saw him destroy a lot of other runners, uh, or a lot of athletes, male and female, because of his way. And I just somehow had the personality to stand up to him when a lot of others didn't. And in that respect, he made me very tough. But as I grew older and, uh, you know, I got married young and, and my ex-husband and, and Gordon didn't get on and they were competing, you know, competing with each other uh, kind of for me, as you might say. And so that didn't help too much. And then uh, prior to that, I think, I forget what age I was, but... Gordon was taking me to a track meet and he kind of made a move on me sexually and, and I think I was only 16 or 17 at the time. And that kind of stuck with me a, a, a long time or probably forever and I think it put him in a place where he'd been rejected and from that moment on uh, his whole uh, demeanor towards me just changed and I, I lasted, I lasted 10 years. I lasted longer than a great many runners with him and it was really because I just wanted to run, and I thought he was the only coach that that could could coach me. And finally, in 1980, because of the boycott and everything I was going through with him, I quit sport. I quit teaching and quit the sport and just gave up and and just thought, you know, this this just isn't working. And uh, if it hadn't have been for my second coach and starting all over again, we wouldn't be having these this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and um, and unfortunately especially in the last few years there has been a lot of issues with inappropriate coach athlete relationships um, I know it happens in a lot of sports but there's been a lot of publicity lately um, a lot of coaches you know being fired due to inappropriate stuff and, and I've actually known of others that haven't been fired and haven't been brought out in the open, um, mostly because they're trying to protect the women and they 
you know, they don't want to drive them through it, but the coaches keep getting recycled. Um, what is your advice to women and or to administrators that have to deal with this kind of problem or who have dealt with this problem? Well, sadly, I watched, um, not with my coach, but through being in teams and administrators and other coaches, I watched a lot of young girls go through um, sexual harassment, um, and I watched a lot of them either get very ill or get eating disorders out of the stress of all of that. And I would bring it up to my second coach, because this is when I got older and, and started watching it happen with younger girls on the team. And, and, you know, you try to counsel, but you've got no right to be really doing that, and you've certainly not got any uh, educational skills or whatever to be doing it, but you, you try and just talk to them and help them and tell them to stand up for themselves. And, you know, that's very tough because... I got through it, and I don't know why. I mean, I was somehow a fighter, or I just wasn't going to put up with this kind of behavior. I really don't know. I mean, it takes psychologists, I guess, to work out what makes people tick. But I watched, I've seen so many younger girls, um, you know, kind of either they start off with their coaches, and the next thing, the, you know, the coaches are 15 years older, and the next thing they're having relationships with them and the next thing they're marrying them and and there seems to be men that that's just like having that power over 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 younger women and it's a great way to do it is to be a coach and and so i've witnessed it it's it's sad um uh, but you know this that's just what's out there when people feel that they've got power and control uh there's a lot of different ways you can um uh force that on, on, on people, whether it's just being um, overriding people or being like my first coach was, loud and dogmatic to start off with and then trying uh, the, the kind of sexual side and that doesn't work, so therefore he goes back to just being you know, obnoxious and loud and, and demeaning towards me and so forth. That's the way he chooses to do it. And then it was up for me to basically say, I've had enough. I mean, I've just had enough. And... I'd had enough and I quit, and I, but then I got another coach who, whose demeanor was completely different and he was a gentleman and he revived me and, and, and encouraged me and, and that was just the person I needed at the time and, and we went to the very top together. And to be honest, when he died, uh, he was only 64 years old and after the death of my father, that was the saddest death um, that I'd had. And... and um, he was just a great guy, and we had a great partnership, and it was totally respect, athlete, coach. So I got to live both sides, and I'm very grateful I did. And so in, in 1980, you've, you've gone through this. You've, you've dealt with the coach. Um, it was inappropriate in a lot of ways. And in 1981, so you probably got a new coach, and at this point you also moved to the United States. Um, Tell me about getting a new coach and making a huge change. Well, I joined John um, at the end of 1980. I, you know, he was he'd been talking to me a lot, and I'd had a lot of people say about you know I'd quit the sport, but I had a lot of talent, and I was still young, and and there were opportunities, and and so I joined John. I think about November of. of um, uh, You'll probably remember that. I should have the book in front of me now because it's <laughs> all so long ago. But I joined John, and, and um, 
he's kind of said to me, you know, I've watched you all these years. I think you've got a great deal of talent, but I don't think you've been uh, trained correctly, and I'd really like to take a shot, but you've got to trust me. You've got to trust my program. And I had nowhere to go but up, so I started training with him. And, uh, heck, I made so much progress so quickly that I managed to scrape myself in by one second to a New Zealand cross-country team going to the World Cross-Country Championships in uh, Madrid, Spain in 1981. And I went over there, and at that point, uh, two of our very famous male athletes, Rod Dixon and Dick Quacks from New Zealand, who were Olympic medalists on the track, but they'd come over to the United States to start running in the road races here, and Rod was on the team with us in um, Madrid, and I'd been on many uh, teams with Rod through the years, and, and I'd trained with the guys. I always trained with the guys. I never trained with the gals, and in fact, I just saw Rod recently in Savannah at the Running USA conference, and uh, we were talking about all this, and he was saying we were kind of remembering things, and he said, remember I told you that you needed to go to the United States because that you were going to find your strength running the roads, that that's what you were going to be best at? And it was him. I remember him telling me in, in, in Madrid at the World Cross Country, is, and you've got to go to the United States. That's going to be your strength. That's what you're going to be good at. You've got to go run the roads. And at that point, I made the decision that I was going to go and... and uh, Arrived here in oh, end of March of 1981 and ran my first ever 10K at the Crescent City Classic in New Orleans. And I finished third behind Patty Catalano, who set an American record, and Joan Benoit, as she was then. She was second. And I ran 33 minutes and 12 seconds for the first 10K I'd ever run in my life. And that was after falling down at the start of the race. and having to get myself out of a crowd of people and keep on going. So I came and I just found that my niche was running these middle distances, that all these years I'd only thought I was a 1,500-meter runner and, you know, two miles across country, and suddenly I found that these middle distances were just up. I mean, they were just perfect for me. And people encouraged me, um, Jeff Galloway and his wife, put me up in their house for a few weeks and then I went on to Eugene and got put up there for some time and and just started to learn about this whole road racing circuit in the United States and went to Denver and uh, people found me a, a couple to live with and it, it was just an amazing time where I'm 25 years old, I'm in a foreign country <laughs> as it was and because all my trips had all been to Europe and people were just so great, and there was so much encouragement and excitement about how the world was changing, and particularly for women, that women were now going to be allowed to run all these longer distances. And, I mean, you know, Bloomsday and Spokane and Boulder Boulder, and I just got introduced to all this excitement. It was, it was very, very, it was just wonderful. And at that point, you know, the sport was still amateur, so... People, race directors or local running shoe stores would slip me $100 cash so that I could keep on going. Um, if it wasn't for people putting me up in their house and getting that those little bits of cash, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able. I would have had to pack up and go to New Zealand. And then, then the Cascade runoff happened. And this was June of 1981. 
Change the world. In Portland, Oregon, I tell you. Um, at that time, uh, Don Cardon was part of the Association of Road Racing Athletes, and you know they were pushing really hard to get some of the, the biggest names in the sport to, to make a stand. Um, and I love in your book you talk about everybody sitting around the night before you know, talking really big about, you know, what they want to do. And there are some really big names in there um, that you have listed, like John Sinclair and Herb Lindsay, Don Cardone, Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, um, and a lot of the other women that were in the room. Tell me about this Cascade runoff and if you knew you guys were really making history and um, and about that meeting. Well, I, you know, I still wasn't a, uh, any kind of name in the sport, but uh, I was living in Denver, and a person that um, had a lot to do with helping me out there was Cree Kelly, who was just starting out. He had a running shoe stores in uh, Denver. He was very good friends with Jeff Galloway, and he was starting to kind of help out a few athletes, and he was the person who had found me a place to live. And he says to me, Annie, there's going to be this big race in, in, in Portland, Oregon. I think you should go. And he told me about it and what was going to happen and how there was Phil Knight, you know, founder of Nike, was going to put up $50,000 prize money, equally split between male and female. And he said, you know, what do you think about this? And I said, well, I really believe in this because I had traveled through Europe and I had watched all the -the under-the-table payments to my fellow Kiwi men athletes who boasted about how much money they were making and how they weren't paying New Zealand taxes and yet women on the European track circuit really really struggled you know the men traveled by plane and the women traveled by train and and so I had seen it all and I didn't begrudge my fellow Kiwi male athletes for getting money I just wanted the opportunity to do the same thing and so I really believed in it so I said okay I'll go to I'll go to Portland but I didn't expect you know, I, there were so many great athletes on the circuit, and I was a nobody. And I thought, well, I'll just go and I'll stand, I'll make the stand, and I'll say that I agree. And so the night before, we were all in a room, and oh, everybody's all hyped up. And I remember Patty Catalano saying, "Well, we're all going to be millionaires. We're, we're going to make the stand, and we're all going to be millionaires." And I just sat in a corner because I really was nobody. And I listened, and when they said, well, do you all understand the consequences? Do you understand if you accept prize money tomorrow, you're going to be banned? That's the rules. And and so I just sat there. It's like, fine, you know, if I finish fifth or sixth, I'll earn enough money to stay in the United States a little bit longer. So really I just sat back and watched everybody else get up and make their stands and speak about it and... and, uh, stayed really quiet but the next day uh, you know I'm a really those doctors turned me into a really strong uphill runner and the cascade runoff was 15k it was nine miles I mean nine miles and five miles up and four miles down and when I was racing all these women up the hill I found I was so much stronger so I just really went for it and uh, I ended up winning and (laughs) it was really I was still a for, for a woman runner, uh, I was still a little bit overweight from all my troubles and just starting up again. And it was right after the Boston Marathon when that Rosie Ruiz cheated in the Boston Marathon. So I'm coming down to the finish of this race, 
in Portland, and these people in the crowd are yelling out Rosie Ruiz to me because I guess I looked a little overweight for being the winner of a race. (laughs) (laughs) But I ended up winning, and the moment I did, the New Zealand Federation banned me for life. Um, I was in trouble with the immigration department because I was only here on a visitor's visa, so accepting that $10,000 check was not the right thing to do. And, of course, the IRS was there, you know, wanting to, you know, deal with things too. So, in some respects, the excitement of the moment was also um, balanced out by the fact that I was in a lot of trouble. And a lot of the American athletes who accepted money uh, just got suspended because of the American Constitution, but I got the lifetime ban. And, to be honest, a lot of athletes who said they were going to make the stand the night before um, bailed out on us the next day. But I still firmly believed in what I'd done. I had to hire an immigration lawyer. Uh, I did get threatened with deportation. And I got given a lifetime ban. But the most amazing thing was was that not only did Phil Knight um, really support this, but so did a great many American road race directors. They wanted the sport to be open. And so even though I was a banned athlete, a great many of those race directors um, welcomed me to their events the rest of the year. And right after Cascade, I actually went to the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, and that's when I sat down and, and wrote out my first Nike contract on a table napkin in an ice cream parlor um, for $400 a month and all the free shoes. And I thought, I just couldn't believe it. I was just overwhelmed. I really was. And so I went on for the rest of that year and won some more races and actually ended up with $22,000 and thought I was really rich. And then I got told by the immigration department that I had to go back to New Zealand and work out what my new status was going to be, that I couldn't stay in the country under the status that I was. So, you know, a lot of stuff went on, and I was eventually banned for almost 18 months. Um, But nobody, New Zealand stopped me from running down there but when I came back to the United States the following year with the right immigration status uh, American race directors just welcomed me and with open arms and so there was no problem okay and I know at that point um, yeah some of the athletes ended up didn't taking the money some of the athletes put it in the the quote-unquote trust that they set up uh, for for some of the athletes Um, and I think it was you and Lorraine that butted the system, but I think Allison went back and and she was kind of in the good standing of, of New Zealand for a while because she ended up not taking the money, if I remember correctly, or maybe she wasn't at the race. Um, but you definitely butted heads with them for a good year and a half. Yeah, we time. did. Um, I mean, yeah, Allison bailed on us, and, and uh, so we went back, and, and Lorraine had put hers into a trust fund, and I had kept mine in the bank. And I refused to give them their money. The the rule was going to be that you would put the money in a trust fund and then you had to apply for living expenses. Well, I didn't agree with that either. So I never put my money in a trust fund. I fought them and I kept the money in the bank and and I just fought them. And then, you know, finally the the rules got changed. But I just kept, I said, I I need to live. I want to invest this money. This money's mine. I'm not going to give it to U.S. Track and Field or actually it was the TAC back then, the Athletics Congress, they're not getting it. And I refused to hand mine over. Um, 
uh, Lorraine did and, and put hers in a trust fund and, and Alison bailed. So the three of us were in, two, were in different situations, but Lorraine and I were in the most trouble. And, uh, it, yeah, it took until just before, um, yeah, September of 1982 before we were fully reinstated. And going, you were definitely tough because you you went through um, having the deformed feet and the surgery, and then ten years with Gordon, and then in 1981, 1982, you're fighting immigration and IRS and tax. But in 1982, you had an amazing year, even going through all this, uh, being ranked in, um, in the world in road racing. You know, I don't think you ever lost in, in 82. You set a world record in the 5K. Um, and then you got a gold medal in the Commonwealth Games. Um, tell me about 1982, because that seems like one of the best years of, of your life. Well, I look back on that, and I think that making that decision in 81 and John's coaching, it was almost like I was reborn. And I just got the opportunities that I had always wanted. And, and I just, you know, had a, I loved to run. I was passionate about it. I was competitive, but when people say to me, well, you know, who taught you that? Where did that all come from? I haven't a clue. I just I just love to run. I mean, to this day, I just love to run. I prefer to run alone. I don't care about competing, never have from the moment I retired. But once I got that chance, um, it was just go, go, go. I'm just, I was having a blast. And it was all because I just wanted to train, I wanted to race, I wanted to compete. I was just having a blast, and that's what I wanted to do, and it was nothing more than that. And whether I was able to block out everything else and do it, I think I had a tremendous capability to focus um, very well. Uh, I think that's a big strength that I had. Uh, and I, you know, I just I had great trust in my coach and all these exciting things that were happening. It was a dream come true, and for someone... I guess at a young age who couldn't do this, this was just, you know, the world's my oyster and I'm going for it. I love that most of the women that I talk about, the thing the thing that they keep saying is I love to run and it was something I'd like to do and you know, they were doing it well before prize money or, or they were even allowed to run in the Olympics. Um, unfortunately for you at this time, you know, short-sightedness of, you know, um, the IOC they didn't have the 5K or the 10K in the Olympics at this point. So I think in 1983 they were going to add the Olympics. They were going to add the marathon in 84. Is that um, what made the decision for you to debut in the marathon in 83 and to move up from the 3K, 5K, and 10K? Yeah. I, I mean, I look back, you know, and my coach and I often talked about this. I never look back with regrets, but we do look back and, and ask question whether we made the right decision in 1984 because of the fact that I held the world record in the 5,000 meters and I was number two in the world in the 10,000 meters and Los Angeles was not going to have either of those distances. And, you know, here I am. I had won the gold medal in the Commonwealth Games in 1982 and you know, we had a pretty good time, and we talked about it a lot. And I had a lot of pressure from people because of all that road racing success to try the marathon. And I really didn't want to. I was concerned about my feet, whether they would last the distance. But because I had was creating such a name for myself, there was a lot of pressure to run the marathon. And so finally, my coach and I decided that I would go for the marathon. 
And of course, it didn't end up real well. I, I did make the team, and but I ended up in hospital in Los Angeles on an IV because of the heat that day. So, you know, you can look back and look at the fact that the gal I beat in the 3,000 meters to get the Commonwealth gold in 1982 got the silver in Los Angeles in the 3,000 meters. Um, it's real easy to say, well, what if? But I always say to people, here's what you have to know. Because everyone has to remember the Mary Decker Slaney Zola Bud debacle where they tripped each other up and Mary Falls and, and so forth. Well, if I'd been in that race, I would have been up there trying to fight for being the front runners too because I was like Mary. I liked to run from the front. And I would have been in the middle of that mess probably myself. So I kind of look at it and think, I don't know. <laughs> that might have been a mess just like the marathon was a mess. So the biggest disappointment was um, the fact that the 5 and 10 weren't in the Olympic Games. And then I ran in Seoul in the first Olympic 10,000 meters um, in 1988, and I finished 11th in the final, and then qualified for Barcelona in both the marathon and the 10,000 meters. And, and really, at that point, I'd had enough with the Olympic Games, and, and you know, they just, the Olympic Games had been great to go to, but they were never giving me the thrill that everything else I'd done had. It's definitely amazing that you have to compete in the you know, inaugural women's marathon and in the 10,000 meters. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that the 10,000 wasn't added until 1988, and then the 5K wasn't really added until 96. Granted, there was a 3K, but it, it just seems so backwards that <laughs> you know, yeah. with the marathon 10K, 5K, yeah. and a lot of people don't realize that. They don't. When I say to people, do you realize Atlanta in 96 was when women got full equality and they look at me as, really? And that's that's what's so good about what you're doing is, is this history has to be recorded because it's not that long ago. It's definitely, uh, <laughs> it's interesting when I tell people that. Um, and I remember 96 really well because, you know, it was in Atlanta and um, you know, some some of the younger girls that I had been looking up to, you know, made the, made the 5K team, and um, it's when I really, um, you know, started looking at, at running those, so, um, but again, like, I at the time really didn't realize that that was the first time that the women had run the 5K, um, you know, that they'd run the 3K, I just, um, now looking back, I'm like, wow, I actually didn't know that back then, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really happy to be part of this and, and making sure that people know the history of women's running, um, and at the time, did you did you know that you were making history, being you know in the first inaugural marathon and in the first you know ten thousand meters of the Olympics? Did it did it occur to you at the time, or were you just doing whatever opportunities were were available? I think I was just doing what was available um, and not really thinking about it. I mean, it isn't until you you get outside of it, and you know, I do a lot of my speaking now, and 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 you you starting to talk about it and you realize that, yeah, you were part of history in the sport. Um, I think the biggest thing is that pro stand in 1981 because when I say to people, do you understand that Michael Jordan and the Dream Team would never have got to the Olympic Games if it hadn't have been for a small bunch of runners on, on that day? It, it changed the world of sport. And in my own country, Rugby is huge. Rugby is our national sport. And rugby, internationally, rugby was amateur. And when we took that stand in 
1981, all New Zealand rugby players just got up in arms and started saying, you mean a bunch of New Zealand women are getting paid to run and we can't get paid to play rugby. And rugby's the sport. And it opened up a whole big battle with an international rugby. So that stand that we took in 1981 not only changed our sport, but it opened up for a whole bunch of other sports that were amateur. And, and you know, we would never have had the women's soccer team. I mean, the, the Williams sisters and their multi-millions. I mean, it opened up just a whole world for women, but also just in, in New Zealand and in the international rugby scene, it turned rugby professional. Yeah, I, I actually, that's so funny because I really didn't even put that together, but that, you, that's the best way I've ever heard it stated. Um, that is um, that is so true. And I love that you're giving that in your motivational speaking because it's probably the only way that people actually understand it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I just wish I'd get more work. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can, we can try to change that. <laughs> well, you know, it is very, if there was one thing that's been very, very disappointing to me is in retirement, um, that there's no openings for for those of us to... I mean, the shoe companies, I tried to get work with Nike. I mean, with all my history with Nike, I made that stand. I And all that time with Nike, Nike is the only company I was ever with. And I retire, and they're not a bit interested in me. And from the moment I retired, I was 36, I'd done all that work for Nike, been very supportive and loyal to them, and I couldn't even get a job. I, and I had to turn around at that point and go, what on earth am I going to do now? I'm, I'm in the United States. I'm a trained school teacher. You know, what am I going to do? I could go back to New Zealand and, and be a big fish in a small pond, or I could stay here in the United States. I really didn't know what I was going to do. I really thought that Nike, because Nike had hired a whole bunch of the male athletes. Um, they'd even hired male athletes that had been with other shoe companies. But they weren't interested in a female athlete. I mean, it was very disappointing. I could have gone with all my history. I had the skills to go there and, and do things. Um, and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And really what I did was um, built the big event in Boise, Idaho, uh, from scratch with my own money. Um, that's what I did. So my biggest disappointment in terms of the sport is, you know, a lot of the shoe companies forgot who built? Who helped build the sport for them? And from my, in my case, particularly Nike. That that here am I with all this history. I'm on their wall of fame, um, out there in Beaverton, Oregon, and I couldn't, I couldn't get any work, and still can't with Nike. It, it is amazing. Um, while we're on the subject of Nike, um, that they started as a very small running shoe company. Um, they, you know, signed some of the first professional athletes with you and Mary Decker and Alberto and Joan Benoit. Um, and then they kind of expanded, of course, into Jordan and all the other sports that they've done. And it sometimes seems that that they forgot where they started. And you're right, I think they have hired a lot more of the male contemporaries than the female contemporaries. Um, honestly, until I read your book, I didn't know that you were a Nike athlete, and I've been a Nike. I was a Nike athlete for the past six years, um, and I think that's really sad. <laughs> that, you know, as a Nike athlete, we we really don't know the history of of who's come before us, um, and you were definitely one of the first. Um, it, 
without really trying to bash too much on Nike, but um, what have you seen with them over the years and in, in how they've treated running and, and their athletes um, with, you know, they started out as a running company. I think they've forgotten their roots, and they've obviously, you know, Phil Knight is a very clever man, and he knew what he was doing, and, and uh, my goodness, I mean, look where they are, and, and all credit to them. But my disappointment is is that I feel that they have forgotten their roots because they did so, they were so much so important in, in how everything has happened. I mean, my contract with Nike, you know, I had to go to events. I had to sit in their booths. They created uniforms for us. They created autograph cards. It was very, very, very professional. And, uh, I mean, that's what built the sport. They did a great job of building the sport, and they very can take absolutely all the credit or a lot of the credit for doing so. And then they grew so big that obviously they don't need the athletes anymore in the running scene. Um, they just got their thousands and thousands and thousands of people running, and they just need to turn up at the expos and and have a display. And, and you know, the world has changed, and they don't need us anymore. But... Um, uh, this, how disappointing it is for me is that I had to take the word Nike off my resume because everybody assumed that I'm so rich and that I've got my own foundation. I'm like all these multi-million dollar Nike athletes that I can do everything for free. I can be asked to come and speak here and speak there for free because I'm so rich that's what I should be doing. And so I took the word Nike off my resume. And, and it's, it's sad but I've had to do that because it's it's tough. I mean, it, I have a bit of a stipend from still uh, founding the event in Boise, and I'm lucky to get another five speaking engagements a year in, in terms of the sport. And, and it's I just think I've got so much to give, but somehow the sport has left a lot of us behind and isn't interested in us anymore, and that's not just me now, but I think even Joan Benoit had to struggle to to still maintain a contract with Nike. I definitely think that's true. I think sometimes, um, you know, they try to bring her in as much as possible, but I think there was a time, I think, that she struggled. I think it's. I think they're better now with her than they were. Yeah, they are and, better now, yes. And it, it's so funny. You just said that about Nike and the speaking engagements, and um, because you're right, as part of a, a shoe company and a Nike contract, you know, we were... You know, I had to do so many events a year, had to show up and, and do, you know, signings and store openings and, and kids' races and all these things. And the companies that you went to to do the speaking or the events that you went to, to them you were doing it for free, even though you were getting paid by Nike. Um, and I've actually run into that this past year and a half since I've not been with Nike, that all these things that I was doing for, they thought, for free, now I'm still kind of being expected to do those things, I still get asked to come and do this and do that and sign things and and speak at things. And I'm like, well, but I'm not really getting paid to do that anymore, and I really I can't afford to do that. <laughs> I can't yeah. afford to do that anymore. And so I'm having trouble, as like you are, I'm having trouble getting people to understand that if they want me to come, they're going to have to fly me there and they're going to have to put me up and pay me to do what, yeah. quote, unquote, I did for them for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And, and yeah. that's where... I know. I mean, so yes, and that's what that's you can. That's disappointing to me to to hear that the generations coming behind are being treated the same way. Yeah, 
It really is. It's it, it, we're the only sport that doesn't. We're the only sport that doesn't treat our our his, historic athletes well. We are. I mean, you look at the Golf Channel. Heck, they go back and they bring in all the old timers and they get to do commentary or they get to be there or be. I mean, they're always using them to to sign and everybody in the in the golfing world knows their history, knows all the historic players. You can't get people running USA just did the big national survey and it it interviewed or the survey asked people to identify who they related to as so-called famous runners that they relate to. Heck, I think the the first was Jeff Galloway, for heaven's sake. Even that guy, the Penguin, was up there in the top five. They couldn't name anybody. It was it was terrible. <laughs> it was just yeah. terrible. I mean, I don't think Joni. I think she was down, and I don't know. She might have made the top ten, but it was people like Bart Yasso and Jeff Galloway and and that John Bingham who calls himself the Penguin. That's how bad we are. <laughs> I mean, God bless them. They're helping encourage people to run. That's just fine. But really, so they're the people that that people identified. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. Yeah. If you're in Running Times or Running World, then you are known and you're an expert. Um, if not, then, yeah, yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Um, and that takes us into the road races. Um, like you were talking about earlier, they you made a lot of money in the 1980s with road racing, and you told the Running USA, unless you joined the, Board of Directors that, you know, in the 80s, the road races were helping the runners. They were helping them, you know, continue with their careers. They are helping mm-hmm. them make a living. And a lot of the races from the 80s are either not there or their prize money has either gone down or has never increased from the 80s. Um, tell me about what you think about the evolution of road racing from the 1980s to today. And you're, you were a race director, um, so you kind of know how much money it takes and what it takes to put into them. So I'd love to get your opinion from being a racer and a race director of the evolution of road races. Well, uh, you know, going back to the 80s um, when, the, when the sport went professional, a great example was that Bloomsday's first place prize money was $7,000 in 1982. And now it's 2013 and it's still $7,000. Um, there's just a prime example right there. A lot of races have gone... There's another race that I won a lot of times that was $10,000 first prize, and now it's $1,500. And so there's no American athletes, or for that matter, many foreign athletes that can earn a living uh, being road racers um, unless they turn to the marathons. And now we have, you know, a lot of the African countries uh, coming here because to win $1,500 to them is still a lot of money. And so no wonder we're in the state that we're in. And... So when I, you know, when I went from that, I mean, I probably my two best years in the 1980s would have been over the $100,000 mark. Um, I knew that a lot of my contemporaries were, American gals were earning a great deal more from the shoe companies than I was, but I was a foreign athlete, so that's completely understandable. But still, as a foreign athlete in the 1980s earning over $100,000 by being a race a race. Um, a road racer, that's very good. I mean, if you were to put that into the, today's terms, I'm, I would think money-wise that's up around $400,000. I don't know 
not a genius on inflation, but um, I think somebody said that the $7,000 from Bloomsday would be worth about $25,000 now, or it should be $25,000 now, first place. So you do the math on that. That's a pretty good living. Um, it was just for a couple of years. The other years were still pretty good, but but that's just not possible now, unless you're a marathoner, um, to to earn that kind of money as a road racer. And so then when I started my race, I have to admit that for the first couple of years, I didn't have any prize money because I was trying to start a very different race. I was trying to start a 5K for women of all ages and abilities, and particularly for women who uh, were my age and older who had never, ever participated in sport and wouldn't stand on a starting line and if it was competitive or if it was a race or if it was timed or if they were men. And so I wanted to create an event that was all-inclusive. So for the first couple of years, that's exactly what I did, and it went to 5,200 in the second year. And I had some local male runners. Now, this is an all-women's race, and I had some local male runners come to me and criticize me in a nice way by saying, well, you should have prize money because that's where you came from. You're, you're going against what you fought for. And so I said, well, you go find the sponsor that will come up with the prize money so that I can tell all these women who don't have any idea about what the sport's about and are paying entry fees that none of their money is going to prize money. So it's completely separate. So they went and found $10,000, and I started to bring in, you know, elite women, and we started to have really neat press conferences and, and started to do exactly the same things that I did as an elite athlete. And we managed to get... Um, you know, a shoe company involved, and it wasn't Nike. Nike didn't want to support it. Um, it was ASICS, and we built that event to 17,000 women in 1997, and it only began in 1993. So I used the, the exactly the, the template of those road races in the 80s to build the event in Boise, um, so, you know, I I joke about the fact I plagiarized a lot of the great things of all the road races that I ran in <laughs> and just bought it to Boise. But I handled the whole thing in Boise professionally, and I paid people for their talents, and I treated the athletes well, and we built that event in Boise just like all those events in the 80s were built, using the elite athletes and using the, the promotion of the elites um, with the media. Um, so... So, yeah, I, I took the success of all those 80s events and built a big event, too, in the 1990s. And uh, it's it's just sad to see. I mean, these huge events now that are selling out with 40,000 participants in 10 minutes, they don't need elites to build their events. They got all their money coming in. So, I don't know. Something's got to... There's nothing wrong with everything that's happening in the sport. It's all obviously... Having thousands and thousands of people run a road race is the best health care that we've got in this nation. I mean, that's what our sport is. It's the most cost-effective health care for any person to, is to be a runner or a walker in all these events. But I would just like to see the, the competitive professional aspect come back at the road racing level, not just at the marathon level. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, a lot of people have said to me when I've made the fight for more prize money and, and bringing elites in and helping, um, you know, the elites have careers and, you know, be able to run because 
as you know, like as you get older, you get better, and these you know the kids need kind of a bridge to get you know something to bridge the gap. And people are like, well, what do the elites really do for us? You know, what what do they do for the race? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's already big, and you know it's just an added headache. And I'm just like, but that's who started this sport. You know, these the people that the quote unquote you know professionals. Um, it's kind of the history of the sport, but and then a lot of people are like, well, people don't want to run races. They give money to elites. They want to run races for charities or that raise money for different causes. Um, what have you seen in the road racing community with, with the charity races and you know team and trainings and those kind of things that have added, you know, been added to the road racing scene? Well, I my thought I saw. Oh, I've been on the board of directors of Running USA four years now, and I just got elected to my third term. God help me. Um, but anyway, uh, a few years ago, there were two big charity organizations that came to the conference and got up and spoke and boasted about the fact that they were they, the charities were earning $1 billion a year off road races. And in my mind, I went back to the board and I said, why can't we get 1% of that back? If we got 1% of a billion dollars back from all those charities, we could do amazing things on the elite side. I mean, you know, 10% is $100 million. 1% is $10 million. What would we do with $10 million in prize money on the road racing circuit? And all we would need to do is publicize and do the media and do everything we did in the 80s and give out prize money and make our sport a sport that young kids want to be part of because it's professional and you can earn money through running and you can support all these youth programs that are out there and all these kids' runs and so forth, 1%. If we asked as an organization for 1% back from all that charity money, we could do amazing things. And they haven't got the guts to do it. Wow. (laughs) And, you know... That's, that's actually a brilliant idea is if the charities want to use the race as a fundraising, maybe the road races should ask for 1% for, to give back to, you know, the elite athletes or to put back in for, you know, different aspects of the race because without the platform of a race, they wouldn't even be making that money. Well, and you see, and our, our, organ, our sport's so weak that the opposite argument from the charities is, well, we're bringing you a whole bunch more runners into your event that you wouldn't get. And so my argument now is, well, really, these sports have grown so these races have grown so big now that there's a waiting list for them all. I guarantee you that people wouldn't care if they were compared with regard to charity or not anymore. They just want to be part of the event. Yeah, I... So there's, there's got to be a compromise on both sides. And I think, yeah, 1%, just 1% of all that money that came back into an organization like the Roadrunners Club or, or Running USA to be able to start a circuit for the road racing kids. I, I mean, that's all you're asking. That's a lot of money that you could turn around and and then you could, it wouldn't have to be each individual race director putting up prize money no, you'd have the big umbrella circuit that would be coming from above and you just go to each race director and say, we've got this amount of money for your race, here's the prize money. I, you know, I just, I don't get it. I sometimes think, 
well, am I missing something here? Because I keep saying these things, and and there's other people that are too, but the, the, I don't know, our sport is so fractured that it just will not come together under one umbrella to do something good. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, I love your idea. I mean, that's definitely a great idea if we could get it, if you could, you know, get it going. And I think you're right. It it is kind of fractured because there are so many, not so many, but you know, USATF does you know their their circuit. Um, you know, RRCA. You know, has you know road races um, running USA, um, and, and they all kind of work together a little bit, but yet they all have their own different, I guess, pegs of the wheel. Yep. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how easy or hard that would be to get them all under the same umbrella like that and, and do something along that line. Um, it would definitely be be a fun challenge to try. Oh, I've been trying. I, I, I mean, and, and not, I'm not alone in that. I mean, there's been people talking about that. For the last four years that I've been on Running USA board, there's even been other board members that are saying it, but you just can't get the, the unanimous vote to, to make the change. Everybody's just really happy with what they have. I mean... Until things start falling apart, there's not going to be an awakening. While they've got thousands of people turning up to their road races, they don't care. They don't care. They don't want anything to change. They've got all their participants. Why bother with elites? And it's definitely been the attitude um, as of lately. You know, they'd rather have the the charity runners um, in the race and instead of the elites. And you know, and I've been told many times, yeah, the elites really don't do anything for us. But, well, and, and I try, there's some races that, that just through my history, you know, I go to and I stand in a booth all day long with signage and it says, you know, I'm the seven-time winner of the event and all these people who are these, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of overweight charity runners in these events who are just coming to do it for charity, get their shirt and, and so forth, and they just walk by with their heads down. They don't even want to engage with anybody that's been a fast runner. Yeah. And I'm pretty friendly. <laughs> yeah. And they do not. They're not even interested. They don't care. They're scared of us. Yeah. yeah. I, and, I, you know, and yet yeah. in the in the 1980s at those expos, we'd have lines out the doors waiting for people to get our autographs. But our sport does such a lousy job of keeping the names front and center and telling the stories. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm off to a, an event this weekend and I know I'm going to stand two hours for two day, I mean, for two days, for hours on end, and just watch a whole people walk by, look up, and go, "Oh no, I don't want to talk to this person," and and just walk by. And and you know, we've got oh, it's just so frustrating. It's very frustrating. And then I've I've I told race directors sometimes I said, "Look, you know, bring the athletes in and you know have them do things like that. You know, if it doesn't." and make sure it doesn't interfere with what they need to do for training, but you know, have them participate in the event, have, you know, get their name out, get them part of the event. Um, you know, don't just have them come in and leave and don't do anything for the event. That, that doesn't help you or them actually get their name out and help the sport. But in that, And then it falls on the athletes, too. A lot of the athletes or agents or coaches kind of block at that idea, oh, well, I should just get paid for my athletic ability. I shouldn't really have to do anything else. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it goes a little bit both ways. 
Yeah, it does. You're exactly right. They need to be educated. It, it would be a whole process of, you know, a lot of the times they say, well, you don't want to go back to go forward. Well, in this case, it would be a case of going backwards to go forward because there's a whole bunch of athletes that you're exactly right. They're just being dumped on a race with hours to go or the night before, and they leave town before the prize giving or any kind of TV. They won't do anything anymore. And we were all required to come in at least three days before, do media around town, go visit schools, stand and sign or sit and sign autographs. And, I mean, we worked. Um, we were being paid to work. And, yeah, they're, they're just – nobody skilled them, and a lot of them can't even give uh, a coherent – answers to questions at press conferences. I mean, there's, there's, no, you're exactly right. It goes both ways. The athletes are just taking it for granted or they're just so desperate to get in and get out and get on to the next race because they're trying to earn their living. You know, it's, it's, it's our sports um, administration that's at fault. It's not the athlete's fault. It's our, our sports administration. We're not doing anything to, to, to make the sport any better. That's, that's definitely true, and I know you've been you've been giving back as much as possible. Um, I know you you retired, and then I saw that you came out of retirement at um, 1996, age 40, to to do masters. Tell me about um, masters running and and what you think um, of masters running and people competing in that after they retire from the elite senior level racing. Well, I have to tell you, I had no desire to be a masters runner, and the only reason I did it was because I became an American citizen at the age of 40, at the end of 1995, and I thought it would be really cool to try and win an American championship as a new citizen. So I just started putting in a little bit of effort, and I entered six races in 1996, and I think I won five of them, and three of them were national champions, the uh, championships, the 5K, the 10K, and the 12K, and then I retired again. And that's the only, re only reason I did it. And as I was doing it and waking up in hotel rooms and thinking, oh, gosh, I've got to go run a race, I thought, yep, I sure know why I retired. I was happy when I did it, and, and so it was really cool. And that's the only reason I did is I wanted to say I was an American champion. And, uh, um, and, and when people say, well, why don't you and why didn't you keep on going because, when I retired, I was still winning races. And I say there were two reasons. Um, one, you know, I'd already done it for 22 years at a top level, and I wanted to get on with my life and kind of live a bit more of a normal life. And secondly, I was really concerned about what it was doing for my feet, and I wanted to be able to run for the rest of my life. And I thought if I keep pushing like I'm pushing, I'm going to destroy my feet or other parts of my body, and, and I love to run, and I want to run for as long as I can and stay healthy. And so um, that was really the main reason, um, was to get out and be able to stay healthy for the rest of my life and not need knee or hip replacements at a young age. And, and, uh, and I was happy with it. And proving, I proved to myself I was really happy with my decision by running those few Masters races. And I really said at the time that the people who are making the great Masters runners are the ones who never got to do it at the level we did at such a young age. And there's a lot of people just starting out now in their mid-30s that are finally finding out they can actually run and do quite well. And they make the really good Masters runners because their legs and their minds are fresh. 
That's, that's definitely true. Um, some of the women, I think, that did start running the youngest, um, they, like you said, they didn't have any desire to run in the master's competitions. Um, but some of the women that didn't have the opportunity or didn't get it younger, they're the ones that are you know, competing in the 80, 90-year-old master's competitions now. And it's, it's great to see that they found something and they're getting out there and, and doing it. Oh, I think it's amazing. I mean, it's, the growth in women's running just in the last 20 years is just fascinating. And, I mean, you've got women in their 50s and 60s doing the Ironman triathlons. I mean, we've made so much progress in such a short amount of time. Uh, it's really a joy to see. Uh, you can Women are just, I mean, the percentages, what is it, it's over 60% of finishers of half marathons are now women. And that's just happened in 20 years. I mean, I've had to change... Uh, how this, the event in Boise is going to go moving forward because an event like I founded is not needed anymore. I, it's you know you can still welcome the the new uh, runner to the 5K, but we're going to add a 10K now and possibly a half marathon because the sport has just boomed um, on the women's side in the last 20 years. We need to be now off offer more. So it's, it's very exciting. That's definitely true. And I know some of the people talk about the difference between then and now. And a lot of times now people's goals is just to finish or just to do one, you know, just do a marathon. Uh, back when running first started, it wasn't just to finish. It was to do the best that you could and to actually train for it, you know, to be the best. Um, and some people are a little disappointed in that. But on the other hand, they're excited that more people are, are you know, out and moving. So it's I think growth is good in, in many ways, but um, sometimes I would like to see a little more competitiveness in, in some of the people that are that are out running. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've definitely. If you look at the average times of all these events in the last thirty years, the average times getting slower and slower. I, I mean, it, I remember heck, there's a lot of men that will tell me that even local guys that would come out and run in some of these big events. Um, you know, the top 100 guys would, just local guys would finish under 32 minutes or 30 minutes in a 10K, and gosh, now you've just got a few elite out front and the rest of the population on the men's side is running around 40 minutes. And it's, yeah, the average time, you just look at the average time of all these events and, and it's just getting slower and slower. The standard of um, uh, athletic capability just in an average community runner in the 1980s was so much better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was less of the population was doing it, but um, it was definitely a, a higher quality and um, made the events a little more competitive, to say the least. Um, well, and we're also not we're also not telling these people that are in these events that they can be better. We're, we're not telling them. We're not giving them any reason to be better. We're, we're just giving them the platform to come out and shuffle along every weekend. We're not saying, do you understand you can get fitter and faster and healthier doing this? We're not encouraging that at all. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of training programs, but the training programs sometimes are just geared for, for finishing and not exactly um, pushing the boundaries and pushing the limits. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, after after you became a U.S. citizen and you've been here and came out of retirement and you've started the women's uh, celebration, you've been a motivational speaker, uh, you had the biography, Uncommon Heart, and you've been 
as part of the directors, the board of directors and running USA. Um, what else are you doing and, and what plans do you have for the future? Well, I just, you know, like to continue along. As I said, I would love to think I could get more work speaking within the sport or or even get a company um, within the sport that would hire me as a spokesperson to go around and tell these stories um, all over. I mean, there's such a great growth on the women's side of running that, that having people like me and some of the others just going around and, and being able to educate and, and tell our stories to motivate, um, I, I would love somebody to to give me a job to do that instead of having to fight daily to try and get a few people to hire me. And uh, But, you know, you just got to keep doing what you believe in. And, and uh, I am really look back, and I think I've contributed a great deal to this sport, and I'll keep trying to do the best I can. And, and uh, I think if anybody was to look at my life, they would say perseverance is pretty much a big word that comes to mind. <laughs> so I'll just keep on trying. Yeah, definitely perseverance with you is not only overcoming um, the seed deformities, but fighting through the New Zealand system to get qualified for the events, um, you know, qualifying for, you know, the six Olympic teams, fighting not only TAC, but the IOC, and uh, to professionalize track and field and road racing and to let other professional sports participation in the Olympics. Um, you, you've definitely persevered through many parts of the journey of women's professional running. Yeah, it's been a blast, though. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been it's been fun to to read about it and learn about it. Um, and I definitely enjoyed your book, uh, especially you putting in you know parts of your journal and, and letting us get the inside look. Um, that's always fun. Um, so, Anne, is there anything that I've missed or that you'd like to add or talk about the the journey of uh, women's distance running? No, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, the poor person that's going to have to edit me has probably got the tougher job. <laughs> I think, actually, you did great. Uh, there was, you know, there's no background noise. There's, I think I think it was really great. Um, we'll see if they put all the stuff we put in there about, you know, certain companies or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, it will be It will be interesting yeah. to, to see what they choose. And, and uh, But, you know, if it's only one person saying it, I mean, you can just. I think it should be in there, and I don't mind being the person that's called out to say it at all. Um, it doesn't have to be every single person saying it, but I think it needs to be said. And, and to be honest, I, there's a whole bunch of people in the sport that wouldn't accept anything less from me. They know I've yeah. said it. Heck, I gave. I got up at uh, uh, Running USA when at one time they actually got to speak at the Women's Trail Blazer Luncheon, and there were Nike people in the audience, and I said exactly what I've said to you today. And uh, people know that that's how I speak and that I'm pretty straightforward. And, and uh, so they wouldn't be surprised if, if that's what they heard out of my mouth. So <laughs> we'll see. Definitely. Um, so can I ask um, why you decided to get involved with running USA versus RSCA or USATF? Um, what, what prompted you to, to go the running USA route? Well, to be honest, I stayed out of the uh, administration side of the sport for about 15 years after I retired. I wasn't involved in any way in the sport at all. I just built the event in Boise. I didn't really go to events to speak or anything. And one of my staff, I'd been sending my staff to the Running USA conference, 
And they just kept coming back and saying, people are asking about you. People are asking, what are you doing? Why don't you come to the conference? And I'd say, you know, I've had enough of, of the administration. I'm disappointed with the administration. I'm doing what we're doing here in Boise, and everything's just fine. And they kept pushing for me to come. So I went one time, and then the next year they asked me to speak at the luncheon. And then the third year they inducted me into the Running USA Hall of Champions for what I've contributed to the sport. And then I got asked if I'd run for the board. So it was really just a matter of how the whole thing proceeded. Um, there was no conscious decision to go in that direction. It just happened to be that um, Running USA was the organization I went to in terms of their conference. That was it. Oh. That, sounds, that sounds like a, a good way to get going. People that are interested in you, they, um, I think they take you seriously and they want your help, and I think that's, that's a great way to go with it. Yeah, and I really, I mean, I've met, honestly, I've spoken at the RRCA convention, oh, it's a long time ago now, could easily be 12 or 15 years ago, and USA Track and Field, heck, I live in Evansville, Indiana, I'm only three hours away from US Track and Field in Indianapolis, and I did go up there a few times and have sat down with those people, and they know me, and they know what I can do, but but no one ever really opens the door, so... um, at the moment, Running USA is where I am. Okay. Uh, I I did congratulate Jean. I saw where they've running Roadrunners Club have uh, taken over the pro something. What's it called? Um, the run runpro.com. Yes, and I actually um, got in contact with her and congratulated her on that and said that was a really great thing. And which I think what you're doing now is, is absolutely wonderful. And at that time, I said to her, if there's anything I can do. With regards Roadrunners Club, I'll be happy to, to talk about it. So, um, no, I, I thought that was just great. I'm um, I'm actually from Indiana, and my husband and I are looking to move back, actually, this summer. And I'm, I'm going to be in Indiana a little bit, uh, I think, in April. Um, and I, if, I don't know if you're going to be home. I actually wouldn't mind sitting down with you and talking about a few things that I would like to get started in Indiana when I move back. Um, okay. Where, where are you going to be? Where, where's your family? Um, my family is actually in northeast Indiana, way up north, like 30 minutes from the border of Michigan, um, Fort oh. Wayne. Well, they're north of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah. Oh, you're as far north as I am south. <laughs> Definitely. But uh, we're looking to, to relocate either to um, Indianapolis or down by the Louisville area. Oh, Okay. Um, but I'm actually going to be back in Indianapolis, in, in Indiana area, like end of April. The last, actually, the last week of April, from the 25th through the 30th. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, so I'm just, contact you to see. Well, just keep in touch because I could probably, yeah. you know, I could. Draw, I have to go to um, Southern Ohio on May the 1st. Otherwise, I'm spending April remodeling my kitchen, which is going to ah. drive me crazy. I've put it off and put it off until my uh, microwave blew up and my dishwasher flooded, so now I have to do it. So I'm really home after the next couple of weekends. I'm home most of April because of that, but I do need to go to Southern Ohio on May the 1st, which is a Wednesday. So just keep me posted on where you are, and maybe, you know, instead of coming this far south, we could meet up somewhere, because Louisville is just um, Louisville's just an hour and 40 minutes away. 
Okay. I have, I'm flying in and out of Indianapolis. Um, I'll be going up in between Indianapolis and, and Fort Wayne um, during that week, hopefully having some meetings with different people. So yeah, that would be great if we could maybe yeah. get in contact about that time. Okay. Just Yeah, just let me know because, um, you know, as I said, I could drive to meet you somewhere. So Indianapolis, Indianapolis is now with the finally we're getting an interstate going halfway up there. Indianapolis is a little bit closer and better roads now um, to go up. So. Oh, yes, they changed all the uh, mileage signs and things like that yeah. <laughs> when I went back. I was like, oh, wait, add yep. 200. Yep, yep. So we're finally getting an interstate from Evansville to Indianapolis for the first time. So ah. we're, we're, we're Indiana's third largest city, and we do not have an interstate going from us to our capital city. Okay. So right now it's 30 miles south of Bloomington, and it's supposed to be completed to Bloomington by the end of next year. And my husband's and all of his, I mean, we're the IU family, so we're, we got a, we got number one seed in the NCAA. We're we're having a very exciting year in Indiana. I was going to say, you guys are uh, going to have a fun ride, I hope. Oh, I hope so. It's been a fun, from where they came from the last few years, it's amazing to see what they've done this year. So we'll take it and we'll see where they go. All right. That sounds good. All right. Well, you you just tell me, you know, keep in touch. If there's anything else, if there's anything I can send, I got plenty of pictures and archives and so forth, and 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 let me know about that week and where you're going to be, and we'll see what we can do. That sounds great, and thank you, Anne, for a really great interview, and I appreciate the time, and um, I hope you keep fighting for for road racing and and the kids coming up in the next generation. So. Oh, you're welcome. You take care. All uh, right. Thank you so much. See you, Amy. Yep. Bye bye. <laughs>